Koah, and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of, women of, Tekoa, came, woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage to him and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. And as much as the king does not bring his banished one home again, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son, together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest, for my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left. From anything that my lord the king has said, it was your servant, Joab, who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are on the earth. But the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. 
There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. And Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servant, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered, Joab, behold, I send word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Friend, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, how we thank you in Christ. We are restored. We are reconciled to you. O Spirit, we pray that you would come and help us to understand the truth of this text. Lord, we thank you that you are at work. And Lord, we thank you that you are ever faithful and true. Father, have mercy on us now, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, last week we studied Absalom and the murder of Amnon. And recall how, friends, we are seeing David faltering in his godly leadership as king and as a father. We're seeing the uh, effects of his moral fall, and and we're seeing the Lord's promise to raise up enemies within the house of David. And so, friends, Absalom is that enemy. He is that grave enemy that God is raising up from the house of David. And we know that because as we read further in 2 Samuel, we see Absalom's conspiracy. But I want you to notice how the author of 2 Samuel, speaking under the inspiration and superintendence of the Holy Spirit, is setting the stage for us and presenting to us Absalom as a sort of people's choice, as a Man who stands as a stark contrast to David as he currently is. So where David has been inept, where David has been indecisive, where David has failed to exercise godly leadership, here we see Absalom taking up the role of the avenger and avenging his sister Tamar, whom Amnon defiled. And we saw how that culminated in the assassination and Absalom ran to Geshur where he has been in exile with his maternal grandfather, Talmai, who is the king of Geshur. And this has gone on for three years. So for three years, Absalom is in exile. And in that three-year time, we see that David's heart begins to long for a reunion and a restoration. But David's caught on the horns of a dilemma here. His son is a murderer. And according to the law of God, he deserves to die. And so David can't quite bring himself to recall Absalom and to restore him. And so we see David is, again, trying to sort through these issues. And when we see Joab now, the commander of the army of Israel, come up with a solution. Now, friends, in verse 1, we see that Joab 
again, as the son of Zeruiah. So you recall, Joab is David's nephew. Remember, David's the youngest son, and he has older sisters. So though Joab is David's nephew, he's fairly close in age to David, right? And Joab, as well as his brother, uh, and, you know, they have been with David from his wilderness journeys. And so these are mighty men. Joab, though, is uh, he, he's a cunning man. Remember, we saw him kill his rival Abner in cold blood, avenging the killing of his own brother. So Joab is fiercely loyal to David as king, but he is also very concerned with his own position. He wants to be the commander of the armies of Israel. He wants to be the one who is in charge. He wants to have that position, that dignity, and he'll do whatever it takes to keep that position. But he's also concerned about succession. We're going to see this is going to play into later episodes. Joab is trying to make sure that everything's right for the succession. And so he decides that he's going to recruit a wise woman, verse 2, who will go to David and present a case. And the case uh, is basically that she also has two sons who fought together and one was killed and the other, the avenger of blood, is seeking his life also. So the woman of Tekoa comes and she gets an audience with the king in verse 4. And notice that as she comes, she is pretending to be a woman who has been mourning for many days. She's a grieving widow. She has no husband, verse 5. And her two sons, she says, they quarreled together in a field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And verse 7, now we see that the whole clan of this woman has risen up, and they're demanding that the man who struck his brother be put to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. Now, friends, just to kind of put this in context, in the law of Israel, when there was a judgment to be enforced, there was the role of what is known as an avenger of blood. And the avenger of blood is not a self-assumed vendetta, right? So this isn't like, you know, the wild, wild west kind of thing. But in order to enforce the judgment, there would be a representative from the clan of the man who was killed. So, for example, if someone was killed, then the clan would designate an avenger of blood. So the tribe, the clan would say, we're going to designate the man's father or the man's son or the man's brother or some other kinsman to be the avenger of blood. And it would be the role of the avenger of blood first to track down the murderer. Right? And so remember that in the statutes of Israel, God had set apart six cities of refuge, three on the east side of the Jordan and three on the west side. And these cities of refuge were Levitical cities where the Levites would, would stay, right? And they would minister to the people of God from these six cities. And what was special about the city of refuge was that a person could go to the city of refuge. For example, Hebron is a city of refuge. They could go to Hebron and they could say, I have killed my brother by accident. I am a manslayer, but I am not a murderer. We had a fight. 
there was something that went wrong. I dropped a stone and it accidentally killed him. I did not intend to kill my brother. I did not intend to put him to death. But I have indeed committed this crime. So friends, again, it's a sort of negligent homicide, right? It's not the same as first degree murder. But he could go to the chiefs, he could go to the, the elders of the city and make his case. And it was the job of the Levites and the elders to set a place for him in the city. So he would be given a place to stay in a home until he could stand trial. Now here's where the avenger of blood comes in. The avenger of blood then comes in as the sort of prosecution. And it was the role of the avenger of blood to go to this city of refuge and to make his case before the elders why this man who claims he is a manslayer is really a murderer. That he really did intend to kill his brother and that he should be put to death. And so there was a due process in Israel. God, friends, was very careful to as it were, demonstrate his concern for justice and equity by making certain that even in the law courts of his nation that righteousness and justice would be upheld. That, in fact, the manslayer would have his day in court. He would be able to sit and look at his accuser and that he would be tried, as it were, even by a jury of his peers. And now if he was found innocent, the manslayer was in exile. He would not be put to death, but he would be forced to stay in that city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Then he could return to his home. Then he could return to his clan and his tribe. So, friends, sometimes that exile could be a couple of years if the high priest was not in good health. But if the high priest was fairly young, friends, this could be a more lengthy exile. But there was a provision for this. Now, if he was a murderer, friends, then all bets were off and the city itself was to join with the avenger in putting him to death. So this case, though, is very interesting because David has not executed justice. David failed to discipline Amnon. David would not force Amnon to make restitution to Tamar. To take her as his bride, which would have been the lawful, just recompense. So we see Absalom took it into his own hand. But again, friends, he went beyond the role of the avenger of blood. Now, when he was avenging, he was acting in that role. But we know that there is a matter of justice to be settled. So this is all in the background as this woman comes. And basically she says... Oh, king, will you have mercy on me? If they take my only son that remains, I have no heir. There is no one to carry on the name of my husband. I will be left all alone, deprived even of my last child, if the avenger of blood takes my remaining son. Now, friends, remember, who is next in line after Amnon? It's Absalom. Who's next in line in the as the eldest son, who is the eldest surviving son of David at this moment? In chapter 14, it is Absalom. So Absalom is the heir apparent, but he's in exile. So Joab is setting the stage, right? What he wants David to do is to rule in the woman's favor 
so that the woman can now say, well, why don't you do the same for Absalom, for your heir, for the one who is to have the throne after you? Well, in verse 8, we see that David um, at first tries to brush her off a little bit. You know, there's all kinds of folks that come to the court petitioning for the king's judgment, petitioning for the king's request. And he essentially says, let me get some more information. I will give you a judgment later. I will send orders concerning you. So he does not give to her at first a definitive judgment, a decisive um, decree. So she insists on verse 9. She says, oh, Lord, Put the guilt on me. If someone deserves to die, let it be on me that the king's throne be guiltless. And the king says, okay, I'll give you a promise. If anyone touches you while I'm deliberating, while I'm deciding, bring him to me and he'll never touch you. And then she pleads in verse 11, please let the Lord, let the king invoke the Lord your God that the avenger of blood kill no more and that my son be not destroyed. So in verse 11, this wise woman is able to navigate her petition to where she has requested of the king an immediate judgment. And she's requested that judgment in the name of the Lord. Now, friends, we, uh, we see this quite often, but when someone says, as the Lord lives, that is taking up the Lord's name as a affirmation of the veracity, of the truthfulness, of the authenticity of a statement. And that's dangerous business, friends, because the commandment says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, meaning you shall not take it or invoke it for a worthless purpose. And so when David is making this vow, friends, it is of the most serious kind. He is swearing on the glory of the immortal God of the covenant, the Lord God omnipotent who reigneth. He is binding himself with an oath, saying to the woman, if I don't do for you what I've promised, may the Lord himself take vengeance on me as the Lord lives who will hold me to my vows. Now, friends, in the New Testament, there are certain passages that will say, to, as a word of Christians, not to, to take vows, right? To let your yes be yes and your no be no. But then, friends, in other places, we are told that to take a vow, we must perform our vow. So what is the scriptural teaching? Well, the scriptural teaching, friend, is be very careful what you swear to. Be very careful what you promise. Especially when you invoke the glory of God. As a witness. Because friends, God holds us to our promises. We are promise breakers by nature, friends. But God is the great promise keeper. We may not think much about breaking a vow or discarding a promise. But the Lord takes those things very seriously. Because for Him, His word is bond. If the Lord says he will do something, it's done. Friends, you and I live our lives on the promise of God. That God means what he says and will do what he has said. 
for us. Friends, that is the very bedrock of our hope. This gospel message that is proclaimed to you is all premised on the trustworthiness of the Word of God. That God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. Because if He wasn't, friend, how would we know that Christ would indeed redeem and save all those who come to Him by faith? God never changes. And because, friends, He is faithful to His Word, He commands us also to be faithful. So, friends, here we see in David's example, he's invoking the name of the Lord. He's binding himself with an oath. This is a very serious business. And, friends, we ought to have that same seriousness in our promises, in our vows. May we be a people whose word can be trusted, whose yes is yes and whose no is no. Well, David says, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your Son shall fall to the ground. Your son will not be put to death. I give the judgment of mercy. Now, friends, as king, David has the right to dispense with clemency, to dispense with mercy, to dispense with justice. Uh, So, friends, again, think of it almost like a presidential pardon. Just as the Lord has the right to forgive, to pardon, So till we see that he's given to his king, to his representative, because that's what David is. David, as the king, is a mediator. He is the representative of God. He is presenting and administering the rule of God and redemption and grace. And so he is acting in a special authority. He has the right, as king, to grant a pardon. And so he does. He pardons the son of the woman and gives to her a promise that he will not, the son will not be put to death. And so in verses 12 down to 17, we see that the woman now gets to the real reason why she's there. Okay, King, Lord, David, you have given this judgment. Well, let me speak to you another word. And she says, 13, why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. So she has some courage to call the king out for his own hypocrisy. Now, friends, again, we are told that she is a wise woman, which, friends, as we look through the scriptures, this category of the wise woman uh, brings to mind such individuals as Abigail, brings to mind um, the wise women who knew the will of the Lord and were faithful to his commands. Friends, in in the scriptures, wisdom um, is different than knowledge, but you can't have wisdom without knowledge. So knowledge is a prerequisite for wisdom, but wisdom, biblically speaking, is the practice of godliness. It is the art of Christ-like living. It is living a godly life in an ungodly world. Friends, in short, wisdom, as the scripture says, it begins with the fear of the Lord. For in the fear of the Lord, we begin to think what is good, what is true, what is pleasing and honorable in the sight of our Father in heaven. True wisdom, friends, is manifesting Christ, who is the wisdom of God his own character, in his own work. 
And the spirit of wisdom himself has come so that we too might grow up into the full stature of Christ. So this wise woman, it's not that she's trying to trick David. She has agreed to help Joab. But she is truly concerned for David's well-being. For David to see that yes, it is in accord with the will of God and the word of God to restore Absalom. And so she reminds him that we all must die. We're like water that's spilled. But remember, God gives means, verse 14, for the outcast to be restored. And she says in verses 15 to 17, she knew that the king would hear her request, for he is a godly man. He is a man who knows the word of God, who is um, one who... Uh, who speaks the very truth of God. Verse 17, And your servant thought the word of my Lord the King will set me at rest, for my Lord the King is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Friends, this is who David has been. Friends, remember how decisive and wise David's decisions have been? How the Lord so worked in and through David that his he was giving such good, wise, and holy counsel. This is the David who brought the ark into the city of Jerusalem and danced before the Lord with all of his mind, who led a, a revival, as it were, among the people of God, who was so passionate and zealous for the people to return to worship the Lord. Friends, this wise woman is reminding David of what the Lord called him to be. David, this is not an easy decision. But the Lord has been so faithful to you. He's given you his spirit to equip you, to enable you, to empower you to be king. So this wise woman reminds David of his calling. Friends, when we have failures in our lives, sometimes we forget what the Lord has called us to be and who we truly are in Christ. You know, friends, our failures ought not to define us. Not not to defeat us. Because, friends, we know that where sin abounds, grace abounds. All the more we know that even though our sin has consequence, God is sovereign in His grace and He is able to work His perfect plan in and through and despite all of our failings. And so this wise woman is reminding David, David, the Lord is with you. The Lord has blessed you. The Lord has called you to be king. So friends, maybe today we need to be reminded of our calling. We need to be reminded of what the Lord has called us to as we serve and follow Christ. Well, in verses 18 to 20, we see that David asks if Joab is behind this. And she says, yes, uh, there's no way that I can deny it. You have found it out. In verse 21, Joab, probably fearing what David, how David will respond to his plot, says, Joab, bring him back. Go find the young man Absalom. And Joab is grateful in verse 22. And he says, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab has gotten what he wanted. And he goes to Geshur. He brings Absalom home. But the restoration is not complete. Yes, Absalom is allowed to return from Geshur, but he has to stay in his own house. So he's been in Geshur for some three years, and now he spends another two years 
confined to his home. He is not allowed to come into the king's presence. And he lives apart. Which, again, friends, David's judgments are clouded. He wants to restore his son, but he doesn't want to go the full way. He still wants to sort of withhold a little bit of this restoration from Absalom. And so he says, Absalom, you have to stay in your house for two years. Now, friends, again, this is five years that Absalom has either been in exile in a foreign land or he's been cut off from the court of the king. And it's in these five years, friends, and in the years that follow, that we're seeing these seeds of conspiracy take root in Absalom. I mean, imagine, friends, what's going on as he's stewing, sitting there in his house, day after day, wondering, why does my father not either summon me to put me to death or restore me to his face? Now, in verses 25 to 27, we're reminded of Absalom's physical uh, beauty, that he is a handsome man, that he is uh, one whom all the people of Israel know to be a handsome man. Friends, remember, Saul was also considered a handsome man. And in one sense, friends, this is kind of the best thing that you can say about Absalom. He is handsome in appearance. Uh, and we're described that he has lots of thick hair, which we all think is really wonderful. I mean, 200 shekels worth of hair, that's a lot of hair. So, so this Absalom is a very handsome, very striking man. He has three sons. They all die in infancy. But he has one daughter whom he names Tamar. And she is also a beautiful woman. Well... Absalom is the people's choice. He looks the part of a king. He looks presidential. He looks like the leader that Israel needs. So David is faltering in his judgments. David's lost some of his luster. The people are a little disenchanted with the rule of David. He's sort of gotten worse as the years have gone by. But now all of a sudden there's another option. Maybe they don't have to follow David. Maybe they don't have to follow the Lord's anointed. Maybe they can have a king like all the other nations. Maybe they can have a king whom they can get excited about. A king who would look good on the coinage that gets sent to all the nations. Friends, Absalom looks like a king. And in verse 28 to 33, we see that Absalom's finally restored. And uh, it comes by when Joab, he summons Joab repeatedly, and Joab tries to ignore him and push him off, and then Basically, we see that Absalom says, Joab, you know, my servants go burn his barley fields. And well, that gets Absalom's attention. And he comes and imagine, you know, friends, he comes and he's storming mad. Why did your servants burn my crop? Don't you realize I, we labored all year for this crop? And you just torched it. And Absalom said, look, Joab, I have summoned you time after time. 
and you haven't come. Bring me to the king. It would have been better for me if I had remained in Geshur. But it is time for the king to make a decision about me. If there's something in me worthy of death, let him strike me dead right now. But I am tired of playing this waiting game. Take me to the king. Again, friends, Absalom is decisive. Where David is more indecisive. And so we see Absalom, as it were, kind of takes his life in his hands, asks Joab to bring him into David's court. And when he gets before David, we see that Absalom bows and he is restored. He bows in a humble posture, verse 33, his face to the ground before the king. He makes the most humble of petitions for restoration and the king kissed Absalom and he's restored. He's restored to his full rights as a son. He is deemed to be the heir apparent. But friends, over these last five years, something has taken root in Absalom. His ambitions now go higher and deeper and further than simply waiting it out until his father dies. Absalom thinks he can be a better king. And there's a great number of folks in Israel who think the same. And so friends, in the Sundays to come, we will see what was the greatest threat to the kingdom of David. Where it looked like the kingdom of David was going to be snuffed out almost as soon as it had taken root. But friends, even though God had raised up Absalom within David's own house, it would be the same Lord of the covenant who would bring this young man down. And so we're reminded, friends, God is sovereign. God is faithful. God will keep his word. And even through this, he's still working in David. So let's pray. Friends, we thank you, Father, for um, this day. And Father, we ask that you would be glorified in this week to come. Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust in you and to, to depend upon you. Father, thank you that we may always depend upon the faithfulness of your word. Father, we ask your mercy in Jesus' name.